Welcome to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. Join Tracy and Zach as they discuss what kooky structures and narrations mean to them, why they like them, and some of their favorite examples. So, stay tuned. Hey there, and welcome to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. I'm Tracy, and with me today is Zach. Hello. And the uh, when we come up with our subjects for um, podcast topics, um, sometimes there, we, we have like a placeholder name. And in this case, the placeholder might need a little work because the, the, uh, the tentative title is Kooky Narrative Structures. Um, so we have not talked about this at all, Zach, but so yeah. what, um, how would you define a kooky narrative structure? Um, you know, when I think of kooky, when, I, when we started talking about doing this podcast, my initial thought was thinking about all of the, the weird fiction I like to read, mm-hmm. which was a, you know, a genre term I had never heard until the last couple of years, the further I dove into strange science fiction and started realizing, oh, there's this whole genre people refer to as weird fiction. And in so much of it that I read, I, I feel like you could classify it as, as these kooky narrative structures um, where, you know, I think a great example, I think, is maybe the book House of Leaves, if I remember that's, that's the correct title of it, um, where the, the narrative itself is presented in kind of an off-kilter way. It's, it's not a point A to point B storytelling, mm-hmm. um, maybe... I know with House of Leaves, I haven't read it personally, but I've looked at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the text might be inverted, or you might have to read it in a mirror, um, mm-hmm. or you might have to kind of play a game with the book to yeah, you understand know, what's being said. That does sound kooky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that definitely fits the, uh, the definition. I relied really on, I took a class in another, literally another century ago, um, <laughs> called Strange Narratives, Mm. and it was um, all novels that either had um, unreliable narrators, uh, which is such a great, um, it's such a great one, you know. It's one of my favorites. And because the the whole concept of reading a novel, especially one that is, you know, told in the first person, is that you trust your narrator. Yeah. I mean, we all you, you open a book and you trust what they're telling you is true. And so it's the ultimate betrayal when it turns out that they are unreliable. Um, so that so I one of the books, actually none of the books that I was going to talk about um, were in that class, but that that was really the framework of like um, something either like the literal structure of the book is interesting mm-hmm. or the narrator is wackadoo and yeah. um, so that, that's where I was coming from. So tell me a book on your list. Uh, the first book I brought talking about unreliable narrators. Um, I brought a book called The Fifth Head of Cerberus uh, by Gene Wolfe, which is actually, it's three novellas um, that comprise this kind of overarching story. Um, I'm glad you mentioned unreliable narrators because uh, as I've gotten into reading Gene Wolfe, he loves an unreliable narrator. Almost all of his stories are told first person through a narrator that for one reason or another, you cannot take everything they say at face value. 
Um, but I chose the fifth head of Cerberus beyond just the unreliable narrator because, you know, at face value, it's a science fiction novel about humanity in, in some alternate timeline or faraway future colonizing um, these two planets in some other solar system. Um, but the way it's broken up between these three novellas, the first novella is kind of this first-person narrative following a young man who's growing up on one of these colonized planets post-colonization, and it's him telling the story of growing up under this wealthy father on this planet who, who's experimenting with, with like genetic altercations and, and cloning and kind of all these very typical science fiction um, ideas. The second novella... Um, or honestly, all three of these novellas, you could read them independently, and, and they would seem like they have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. But as you go on, the second novella reads as if it's a anthropologist recounting a um, like indigenous folk tale. So you get this uh, kind of secondhand account of this bizarre, non-linear folk story that takes place on this alien planet before humanity has colonized it. And then the third no- uh, novella in this series is, a, it's, it's as if it's from the perspective of some military or government official on one of these planets post-colonization who is now reading through the reports made by this anthropologist. Uh, oh, I, you know what? I love this. It, it's, it's so fascinating because um, I, I reread this for this podcast. I'd read this book um, a year ago, and when I read it the first time, I just read it at face value, um, which is what I do with a lot of books I'll read. I didn't want to annotate it or anything. Mm-hmm. And I read it, and it was this very interesting science fiction story that I could follow for the most part. But there was all these things kind of in the periphery that I had no idea what they meant, why they were in the in the book. Mm-hmm. So I reread it for to for this discussion, and this time I, I kept a pen in hand, and it was like reading a totally different story. Really? Um, yeah, I, I really I tried to analyze like when I approached it, I thought, okay, I, I know Gene Wolfe does not waste space mm-hmm. in his writing, so I thought I need to really be really analytical of every paragraph I'm reading here. And kind of for this, this whole podcast discussion, uh, Wolf loves to leave some of the most important aspects of the narrative out of the narrative hmm. uh, in the sense that he will talk around them. And whereas some other author may reveal, you know, a, some big plot twist or something very boldly and they will, you know, maybe they'll state it a couple times to make the point. This yeah. is what's happening. Wolf might say it once in one sentence and never talk about it again. Um, so when I reread The Fifth Head of Cerberus, I had this experience where I was like, oh my God, I'm reading a different novel than the one I read a year ago because I'm looking between the lines here. I'm, right. I'm looking kind of behind the narrative at these little breadcrumbs he's putting around. Um, and, you know, talking about just weird narratives, I think it's a, a perfect example. Um, you know, again, you get these unreliable narrators. You mm-hmm. get these three different types of storytelling from a, a traditional first person, a, a folk story recount, and then this kind of uh, a, a man just reading government transcripts, essentially. And it all comes together to make this very... Um, thematically dense science fiction novel that I did not realize was there when I first read it. Well, I I am not a science fiction kind of gal, but 
the structure of that is really intriguing to me. Like yeah. you're on different planets or whatever. Okay. But <laughs> the, um, um, a book that I think we've talked about, uh, on another podcast, uh, trust by Arnon Diaz. Um, it's four books. Mm. The first one is, um, a novel that came out some year It has some author. Then the second part is an autobiography of this man who sounds an awful lot like the guy that the novel is about. And then there's the, um, the ghostwriter of the guy's autobiography, her memoir 50 years later. And so you, you have this story that keeps, like there's holes in it, but then it's filled in with the other the other pieces and that kind of storytelling uh, like it's like a treasure hunt yes you know but you didn't know you were on a treasure hunt when you read it the first time exactly and and that's you know I think that I'm really interested in reading that now because that's um, I've really become very interested in Gene Wolfe's work over the last three or four years and I've started doing rereads and I've realized um, with almost all of his books you know starting over doing the second read is when I realized, oh, I am on a treasure hunt Mm -hmm. with almost all of his work. Um, Because, you know, you finish these books and and you you can't know it the first read through, but it's just filled um, with foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. And it's filled with so much information that when you first read it, you know, not knowing where the story is going means nothing. But then when you revisit it, it's... adds such a, a dense layer of, of storytelling. Um, and I, I consider that like the, the hallmark of really good storytelling where yeah. maybe there's a million details, but every one of them is important and yes. it's there for a reason. Um, I know I've talked about Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead a lot because it was, I think, the, the best book I read last year. Um, but it's very long it's very detailed, and Shelley, who is often on these podcasts too, um, she would be like, "Well, I'm 200 pages in," and I was like, "Just trust, trust me that every bit, every digression, um, you know, you might get a chapter about so and so's great grandfather, and you're like, what? It it will all come to be. It's for a reason, and that is really good storytelling. It's yes. like that." Um, Checkoff thing about if um, if there's a gun on the mantle in yeah, Act One, um, it it needs to it's going to go off in Act yes. Three. So don't put something in if it's not of use to the story itself. Absolutely, and yeah, that's that's overall you know last word on Gene Wolfe is something I've experienced with his work, and it's funny. I, I will recommend him to people, and oftentimes they'll they'll do the first read through, and they'll be like, well, that's okay but I don't understand why you think this is so great. And mm-hmm. I'll be like, well, just give it one more one more chance and then let me know what you think, you know, now that all these puzzle pieces. Right. You know, you didn't even know you were looking at a puzzle in the and first place. And I think place. that that's, that's the best thing. If you knew you were on a puzzle hunt, mm-hmm. you would be, you know, meticulously making sure you got every single detail. But if you don't even know that's what kind of journey you're on, yeah, um, it, it really takes something to pull it off and make it all come Abs- together. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, this, I am not the first person or the last to find to to ever discuss this book. But um, have you read *Pale Fire* by Vladimir Nabokov? No, I have not. All I right. read *Lolita* once, and uh, I love *Lolita*. Yeah, I know it's kind of gross to say that out loud, but it's such yeah, a good yes. book. It's yeah. such a good book. Like, here's the worst thing ever, but written in the most beautiful language 
ever. You know, it, it's that dichotomy yep. is, is really fascinating. I agree. It's, when I read it, I remember being repulsed and also could not look away. I know. Because the yeah. prose was so, so beautiful. We actually have, and I, I didn't, when I read it, um, I didn't read the, the copy that we have here because we have a really old copy, but it's an annotated Lolita. Because, oh. you know, like every third sentence, there's like a phrase in another language. Yeah. And um, I got really caught up at the beginning of like, what does each thing mean? Mm-hmm. And I realized I was not like I wanted to read it like it was a story, yeah. not like I was in class. So I read it um, just like, well, I don't know what that word means. Moving sure. on. Um, and then I went back and there were a couple of things that I was like, oh, he's even more of a genius. Yeah. Um, but in terms of narrative structure, that is, it's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. But um, Pale Fire is, um, now look, I did deep research. I read the Wikipedia page mm-hmm. um, about <laughs> Pale Fire, but I really trust, and let me just have a little moment to talk about Wikipedia. Depending on what the topic is, the people who edit those pages, the people that update them, it's their favorite thing in the world. Yeah. They are not going to let incorrect information about something they love remain on Wikipedia. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So in that way, sometimes I do trust, depending on what the information is. Sure. Um, but anyway, uh, Pale Fire is a 999-line poem oh. by an author named John Shade. And it is there is a foreword, there is a lengthy commentary, and there is an index written by... Um, his neighbor, Charles Kinboat. Okay. And that is what Pale Fire is. It's this, it, it is like you are reading a Norton, like a, yeah, a Norton critical edition of something where there's the forward, here's the text, it's annotated. Yeah. Um, so, but the thing is about Pale Fire, you can read it both ways. You can just read it straight, like page one to page whatever. Sure. Or you can read it, um, like once you get to the poem, I I flipped back like because there there's a there's a footnote on like almost every line, yeah. so then you got to go see what Charles Kinboat says about this, and then as it goes on, um, it just gets like weirder and wackier. Yeah. But just for the um, even if like the plot itself was not weird and wacky, the idea that you have written. A poem by a made-up guy, yeah. and then another made-up guy who is going to analyze that poem, um, and you can also see how he's really wrong about what everything means. Oh, that's great! And so, yeah, it is a delight. Um, when I read it, I was like, "Oh my god, I wish I'd read this twenty years ago." Yeah. I could have been enjoying the the um, the thrill of this this whole time. Yeah. Um, but I did read again on this very. Um, popular website, Wikipedia, that in an interview, Nabokov said that Kinboat, the you know the author really mm-hmm. of of the book, uh, that he kills himself um, after like a- after all the events of the book, he kills himself. And um, a critic said, "This is authorial trespassing, and we don't have to pay attention to it," <laughs> which I really love. Um, you know, the, the, just the idea that it doesn't matter what the author said happened. Mm-hmm. This is our text now. It belongs to readers. Yeah. It belongs to the people who experience it, yeah. um, and which I really like that idea that just like, <laughs> I can dismiss what you say 
um, about the thing that you wrote. Sure. I, I like that idea a lot. Absolutely, yeah. That was really fun. That sounds, that sounds like a very interesting read. It is. I, I, no one told me. Like, no one, no one told me that it was, um, you know, what it was. I had no idea whatsoever. But I had read um, Lolita, and actually, I also read on Wikipedia, <laughs> that um, Lolita was such a huge success. Yeah. It allowed him to, he didn't have to be, didn't have to teach anymore. He had the financial freedom to just sit down and write a super wacky book. Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate that. So, you know. Um, what else do you, did you bring to talk about? I brought. Um, I have another Gene Wolfe book to talk about, but I'm gonna. I'll, I'll book in that. Oh, okay. Um, I brought another book. I it's these are all science fiction books because I have a type. Yeah. Um, I read a book. I think it came out maybe in 2019 called "This Is How You Lose the Time War," and it's written by two authors, and it's this kind of vague future where there there are two warring factions that never really gets into them. Um, but somehow time travel and, and like space uh, or like what's the word like like a dimensional travel has mm-hmm. been invented or discovered and there's this this never-ending war going on between these two factions between different points in time and different dimensions and the chapters trade off from the points of view of these different you know agents or operatives on different sides of this war. Um, and it's like they're in this cat and mouse game with each other trying to capture or kill each other to win this war. But throughout the time, uh, as the novel takes place, they begin to fall in love with each other. And so it, it essentially becomes a love story. But I was reading about it, and apparently uh, the two authors, Max Gladstone and, I may butcher this name, Amal El-Motar, um, they wrote it over email together. And they would just take turns writing. One took one character's stance and the Mm -hmm. other took the other. And they would just send each other a chapter. And it it sounds like they were essentially playing a a game of improv, of just yes-anding each other. And it's really fascinating to think about um, authors writing that way. Yeah. Um, So in in the book, is it every other chapter is told from the other's? Yes, perspective? It, okay. it's as if they are, you know, they will go to a different time period to try to stop each other there, and they will leave each other notes. Um, oh, okay. And it's like they're coming across these notes to each other in these time periods, mm-hmm. and again, it begins very, um, you know, adversarial, and they're against each other, but it, it becomes this, like, respect of, of the game, you know, the time travel mm-hmm. war game, and then it blooms into this, this relationship where they're falling in love with each other, and by you know the end of the novel, they're they're kind of trying to find out how can we kind of get out of time and, mm-hmm. and be together, um, and that, that's the gist of it. But it's it's just really more so the the writing approach is fascinating to yeah. me. Um, I always wonder how when there's more than one author of especially a, I I can get like a, a nonfiction that that makes sense yeah. you know. But how do how do novel writers when there's two of them? How does that even work? Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and like I said, I was I was reading, they were just emailing each other, but it makes me wonder, you know, I'm like, did they plan for this to become a love story? Mm-hmm. Or were they just playing off of each other's chapters? And right. it, it slowly starts blossoming into this thing. Yeah, or, yeah it's, it, you know, again, speaking to two authors writing a fiction story together, it's like, 
you know, I feel like alone an author writing a story, there's so many different processes you can take mm-hmm. to, to go from point A to point B. So it's interesting that to consider how are these two people telling the story together um, in, in a, in a f- you know, f- fictional area and, and making something cohesive that actually works out in the end? Yeah. Um, the Tilted World is a novel by um, Tom Franklin mm-hmm. and his wife, Beth Ann Fennelly, who is a poet. And I will forever be so curious and uh, how they pulled it off. Yeah. Um, There are definitely um, Tom Franklin. If you've ever read him, his his books are um, kind of gritty. You know, um, uh, the best one is Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter, which I highly recommend. Um, But and then she's this poet. So you so it's a story about. uh, that centers around the 1927 Mississippi River flood. Yeah. Um, and so you, I feel like I could tell when her, when she was really, you know, in charge of a scene or whatever, just because it was more lyrical. And then there's bootleggers. So maybe Tom Franklin, kind of, you know, the gritty underworld of, of um, 1920s. Anyway, but I'm, I haven't asked. And I, I don't think I've even you know, looked for the answer in some interview or whatever, but yeah. I'm really fascinated how, um, how that came, came to be. So a book that we, you know, we here at the library commission, we have a book club and what it is now is read whatever you want. And there, you know, there's a prompt, but you don't have to do anything. You can just read whatever you want to. Um, and we just share what we've read. But we originally had, like, we will read the same book. And um, our first just absolutely spectacular failure was John Henry Days by Colson Whitehead. Um, and I believe I was the only person who absolutely loved it and everyone hated it. And we also used to do these um, on Zoom because it was uh, during the pandemic. So... Um, if you, I'm sure the video is still on our YouTube. If you want to watch me be very disappointed, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, listeners can find that. Um, but anyway, uh, so John Henry Days um, is really about uh, a man who is a, he's a junketeer. He's like, he goes on press junkets and he set this goal to be on a junket every day for a year, which is exhausting. That means he must travel every single day. Um, so he has been sent to somewhere that I can't remember for the unveiling of a new U.S. postage stamp that features John Henry of the uh, the, the song, the tale. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, I, don't, I don't know where this dictum came from, but apparently all across the country, every school child was um, it was very important that American folk tales be a part of the curriculum. So we all sang songs about John Henry and the guy with the ox. Is That's not John Henry. John Henry, like... John Henry was the railroad. Yeah, he was the railroad guy. Paul Bunyan with the, with, with the ox. And um, anyway, those were just a huge part of things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Colson Whitehead and I are the same age. So uh, when I, when I started reading it and I was like, 
this kid, he had the same education <laughs> I did, and then I had to look up how old he is. But um, so it's about this man who's come to for this unveiling, and there was there is really a John Henry stamp that came out in July 11th, 1996, and so that's where the and there was a festival to to do this. But everything else about the book, there's very little actual plot. Mm-hmm. It, like n- not a lot happens going forward because throughout um, throughout the book. There may be a chapter about a guy who uh, he's a blues record collector, and he, you know, he runs the shop and this recording of the John Henry song, blah blah blah. You know, so you get all of these digressions, um, which if you like a straightforward plot, which I don't know, most people do, yeah. this book is horrible. Yeah. But if you like wacky stuff, this book is amazing because you you never know like which like what little nugget, what little tiny fleck of John Henry lore will we get to in this next chapter? Um, and I was looking at a couple of uh, reviews of it. Um, there's a kind of funny one. Jonathan Franzen wrote one, and he's just it's it's just so Jonathan Franzen. Uh, he says something about. Colson Whitehead's first book, which had a female narrator and or female protagonist, and Jonathan Franzen's like, man, I wish she had been a man. I don't even understand women. It's something like that, sure. um, which is okay. <laughs> anyway, but um, reviews describe it like in positive ways as being encyclopedic. Mm-hmm. Like here's here's the plot about a guy who goes to a festival, but here's the huge story of John Henry yeah. um, within that. Um, and then the, another review, reviewer, excuse me, called it polyphonic, which that word is always fun to say. Um, but, but it, you know, kind of means the same thing. Sure. But, um, but yeah, so if, if that's, that sounds like it's your jam, you know, John yeah. Henry days can't be beat. I mean, there is some plot. Sure. But he tells you what's going to happen on page 23. Yeah. So, again, if you're like, oh, I love suspense, well, that's not here yeah. because you know what will actually, I guess there's a little bit of suspense because it says what will happen, but you don't know who it's going to happen to. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you go on all these little nooks and crannies and some of the crannies like go on for a while. Then you loop back to the first guy. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it was really, really fascinating. Yeah. I, I also, I love books with little plot, but a, a lot going on. Yes. Um, yeah, my, my last book, like I said, I almost hated to do two books by the same author, but I have it typed, and I, I highly champion Gene Wolfe as a weird narrative storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, he had what a lot of people consider kind of his greatest work was a, a series called The Book of the New Sun. And it, it from what I understand, it was Gene Wolfe, you know, he, he grew up reading all, all the 40s and 50s just like schlock sci-fi and fantasy that he could get his hands on and this was kind of him wanting to think how, how can I synthesize these two worlds of fantasy and science fiction um, but but go beyond that as well as you know to tell a hero's journey but kind of dissect it and tell it differently and so in this uh, book of the new sun it it takes place in a, like a future society that is like post dystopia and there's been some societal collapse it was once some kind of golden age science fiction, you know, future fantasy world that now lives in, in like medieval feudalism again. Mm. And it's this hero's journey of this young man 
typically, you know, he's he's cast out from home and has to go on some grand quest before he can return. Uh, but he makes the this young man um, is a is a character named Severian who, as a child, is orphaned and is adopted by the Torturers Guild, oh. and through the state is is made a torturer. So the, the protagonist right away is is someone that you cannot relate to mm-hmm. um, because their whole worldview and the the whole way they relate to to humanity and life is is just completely different. Um, they're they're a state executioner essentially, but Gene Wolfe is also this. He was a devout Catholic and very into theology, and this whole book ends up almost being this bizarre, like retelling of. The, the story of Jesus of Nazareth, but instead of it being this young man who's gonna gonna come and you know through this message of peace change the world, it's this young torturer who uh, will kind of get to this point of peace by the end of this series. But it, it's just done in such a bizarre way. And Wolf again, it's it's told the book is written as if it is a history book mm. written by this character Severian recounting this story this this life he lived mm. but there are appendixes in the books written by Gene Wolfe but the appendixes are are as if they're they're appendixes to a future history book where it's this bizarre thing where the Gene Wolfe you're reading in the text isn't Gene Wolfe the author he's some other character um, but beyond that, he employs these bizarre kind of tricks in the narrative. Um, again, he was Catholic. He was very interested in, in communion and the Eucharist. And there are moments in this story where through these specific science fiction and fantasy devices, these people essentially have communion together. And then he essentially merges at different points numerous characters into singular characters. And, and takes this kind of Eucharistic idea as like a um, literal thing of these these different bodies and spirits mm-hmm. uh, becoming one, and it, it is such a bizarre reading experience because as you're going through the story, at certain points, you know one of your protagonists is suddenly the culmination of three different characters, and they're no longer any of those three. They're mm. they're a new character. Right. Um, I'm speaking to it vaguely in case anyone reads it, yeah. um, but it's it's just very, it's one of the most bizarre things I've ever read. Um, I've recommended it to people. Some people have absolutely hated the experience of reading it because it is so bizarre and, and non-traditional as far as storytelling goes. And um, just to close up on that, it's, uh, Gene Wolfe likes to do a thing in a lot of his novels where oftentimes massive story beats will happen off the page. Um, maybe he will build up to some climatic event and the chapter ends and then the next chapter starts, you know, three weeks later narratively and all you are hearing about this big event that's been built up to is people's passing comments after it has occurred. Mm -hmm. Or similarly, he will kill characters off screen with very little acknowledgement of it. Um, And... Again, it's, you know, like when I was talking about the fifth head of Cerberus, it, it becomes this puzzle. Um, and if you like puzzles and you like reading, it's a wonderful way to spend your time trying to really piece together what's this story telling me, what's actually going on here, as opposed to, to what's on the face value of it. But yeah, that was, that's um, the, the Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. 
That um, reminded me kind of of, it wasn't on my list, but Lincoln and the Bardo. Have you read that I'm by not. George Saunders? Um, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, except that <clears throat> it tells the story of, so Lincoln's uh, son died young. I don't know. He was, I, I did not prepare uh, to, sure. to talk about <laughs> it. I can't remember now, but, um, and Lincoln goes to his uh, tomb, essentially, um, and sits there. And so all of these ghosts are telling the story, and they tell the story of um, his inauguration ball. And, um, and so, but George Saunders used historical texts to inform what the people are saying. And anyway, um, the audiobook is I haven't listened to it uh, but apparently every single weird ghost narrator has it's it's done by a different person oh that's great so you it's like a Greek chorus kind of um but they're all and you get to know them you know you're like oh here comes so and so again (laughs) you recognize their voices after a while you know but anyway but that one I can't believe I forgot um that that's one of the kookier narratives plus it um you know it was kind of a big hit for you know for literary fiction, um, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna download that book and, and yeah. listen listen to it. Um, but I did want to mention one book I just read, um, Wellness by Nathan Hill. Um, <clears throat> it is a, it's a straight narrative. It's not terribly kooky, except there is a chapter. It's really a story about um, these this couple. They they meet in college. They get married, um, and the the wife uh, Elizabeth is um, she has a really scientific mind and <clears throat> excuse me um, the way she goes about um, child rearing is is really based in science but it turns out you know that children are um, wild animals basically and and you cannot apply a theory of science <clears throat> excuse me um, to every single child. Yeah. And there were there's so many theories about what to do and what not to do. Um, so this chapter is called Unraveling, and um, she's uh, it, it goes through their citations for all of these theories. So it would be like Elizabeth um, thought this was a good idea, and then in parentheses it's like the citation of the study. Um, there's a bibliography just for that chapter because it's anyway. But the 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 big part of that. Uh, of that chapter is is just that it's like kind of written like a um, a scientific journal, yeah. um, but also <clears throat> she is wearing uh, her baby, you know, like in a whatever those things are called, um, you know, a baby wrap yeah, yeah. thing. Um, obviously, I, I do have a child, but he's fifteen, and I did not. We didn't have those. I don't know. I, I didn't know anyone. We, I tried a baby Bjorn, but I didn't like it. But anyway, side note. Um, Anyway, this woman comes up to her. She's in the grocery store, and she's, she's just, you know, panicked and wigged out, and she's thinking about, oh, like, oh, how I'm, I'm going to ruin this child's life. I don't want to do what my parents did. And this woman comes up to her and says, you're unraveling. And she's like, I know. And she completely loses it, sits down, sobs hysterically. But what the woman meant was that her baby wrap was coming undone. Yeah. Um, Anyway, it's a, it's a great chapter, but well, this has been really interesting. I, you know, like I said, I'm not a science fiction person, but 
Tell me the name of the first book. The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Okay. That one yeah. I may I may explore. I, that I, I think it's worth That sounds interesting to me. Checking out. It's okay. it's definitely interesting, yeah. Well, I hope um, y'all enjoyed this episode. Um, and I, I think we're gonna stick with the title of Kooky Narrative. Um, because I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, Non-traditional, that, that just sounds... That's not as fun. Yeah, it's not as and fun. It's kooky. Halloween's coming up. Yeah. So kooky works. A little kooky, kookiness in there. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.